0: Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 50 of the End of of Sport podcast. Uh, My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I am here today with Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. And Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey. So this is actually a really appropriate episode for number 50 because we're kind of getting right to this question of harm and labor. Uh, Today, in the context of hockey and the NHL, and we had the great pleasure of talking to TSN reporter, Rick Westhead, who has done a lot of great work on issues around head injury, um, pain management, uh, and just the general climate of, you know, harm and uh, I would say exploitation in the NHL. And we have a chance to get into that and also uh, his brand new book, uh, which we talk about as well. So uh, I think it's a terrific interview.
1: Yeah. And so we also just wanted to update uh, listeners on a bunch of sort of co-written pieces that we are that we either have already done or that we're working on behind the scenes. So first, uh, last week, I co-wrote a piece with Dr. Matt Hodler, who we had on during Swimming Week. This was for the U.S. Sport History blog. It has one of the lo- longest titles ever. So thanks to Matt for that. It's titled, The International Swimming League is Trying to Forge a New Path for Professional Swimmers, but it is working with an authoritarian country. And so it's looking at how the league has sort of compromised its ideas about gender and financial equity for swimmers, which we absolutely applaud, but that it's also um, collaborating with an authoritarian regime right now to have the season in the pandemic in Hungary. Uh, just a really awful government that's restricted so many of its citizens freedoms. so really kind of doing the opposite of what it's proclaimed to do for its swimmers and then um, we really want to tell you to keep your eyes peeled on social media for some pieces that we are working on one that we have coming out this week with the baffler and then uh, we have other pieces that we're working on I think sort of all of the sort of pre-election anxiety at least for me is that we're sort of putting a lot of the energy into getting our ideas out there to change people's lives and so please Please keep your eyes peeled because we do have words for you
2: and as always if you're enjoying the show please feel free to reach out to us on our socials on twitter and instagram at end of sport pod send us an email at the end gmail.com um, check out our website Um and if you're feeling particularly generous if you'd please consider uh, supporting our patreon which can be found on our social or on our website so with all of that said please enjoy the 50th episode of the end of sport
0: Rick Westhead is senior correspondent and investigative journalist at Canadian sports broadcaster TSN and contributor to CTV News and W5. Prior to his work at TSN, he was a contributor to the New York Times and a world affairs writer for the Toronto Star. He is also author of the brand new book, Finding Murph, how Joe Murphy went from winning a championship to living homeless in the bush, out now with Harper Collins. Rick, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Well, listen, it's a a real pleasure to have you here and we have so much, uh, so much to get into with you. But uh, the first thing we got to ask you, like we ask everyone, how's 2020 treating you in the greater Toronto area?
3: Boy, it's, uh, it's up and down for sure. Uh, The challenges that, that I have and my family has are, are the same that everybody is navigating through. Uh, You know, there have been some positive positives though. You know, one thing that I notice is my family, were actually eating meals a lot more together. Um, obviously, it can be a challenge being all in, in, in the same house. There, there's four of us in, in the house and, and my wife and I both trying to work from home can uh, kind of get on top of each other. But, uh, you know, I, I want to be an optimist. And so uh, one of the things I'm embracing is just the chance to spend more time than ever with my kids
0: totally yep i I hear you loud and clear on that That, that's for me i i I have one child but that's that's the upside we're spending a ton of time together she she would otherwise be in uh in what they call pre-k here in north carolina which is i mean kind of the equivalent of junior kindergarten in canada um and she's just not because i mean it doesn't make any sense to be doing a weird zoom version of that um at her age so instead um you know i'm spending a lot of time with her doing going through that kind of um early curriculum and whatnot, but it's, you know, the positive is, you're right, you get to spend a lot of time with your kids that you might not otherwise. So um, I hear you on that. So listen, getting to the book um, first, because although we're really excited to talk to you about, you know, the issues in hockey generally, I think it makes perfect sense um, to start off with this kind of case study you have, which I think represents a lot of the issues that kind of, um, that, that we find in terms of harm, exploitation, uh, and just the challenges in general with um, athletic labor in the world of professional hockey. Um, Now, I I should note as well that one of the reasons we're particularly excited to have you on the show is that I consider you to be a real anomaly in the sports media complex, uh, which is to say someone who is located at a major network who consistently challenges the various forms of harm that occur in elite sport. Uh, particularly hockey, which is your focus. So that's something I definitely want to get around to um, at the back end of this interview, because uh, it's, it's fascinating to me kind of how you pull that off, given that we see so few journalists manage that. But starting with the book, can you explain to listeners, and again, the book, I want to say the title of the book, the book is Finding Murph, How Joe Murphy Went from Winning a Championship to Living Homeless in the Bush with Harper Collins. Can you tell listeners who Joe Murphy is, what has happened to him? and what it tells us about the National Hockey League as a site of labor. Absolutely. Joe Murphy was
3: on top of the world. This guy was the uh, number one overall pick in the 1986 NHL entry draft. He had just won a championship with Michigan State University, and he was the first U.S. collegiate player picked number one overall ever. Uh, Really good-looking, young, muscular guy, uh, engaging, funny and you know he came into the nhl and immediately had his world thrown for a loop a little bit he excelled like so many nhl players do in junior he'd always been the best and he ran into some confrontations with his first coach Jacques damaris with detroit one of the thing one of the things that that damaris really took issue with was in his rookie season joe missing a team flight which was a real huge mistake on his part. You know, it's interesting. Joe was 18 years old. First time he lived on his own, really. He was with a a Billet family in the suburbs of Detroit. And Detroit has two airports. And he actually just went to the wrong airport and missed his flight. Like other NHL rookies like Mark Messier have done. Um, You know, Glenn Anderson with the Oilers has missed several flights through his career. This is not a unique situation. But Demers decided to make an example of Joe Murphy and, uh, and send him down to the minors. He kind of clawed his way back and and wound up never really remedying his relationship. There was traded to the Edmonton Oilers and won a Stanley cup in 1990, uh, playing on the kid line with the Oilers and went on to have a pretty fruitful NHL career, you know, played up until 2001. Uh, moved around a little bit as a free agent, made some really good money. This guy made millions and millions of dollars with the Blackhawks and St. Louis and San Jose. And and in 2001, you know, after playing his last NHL game, he kind of fell off the map. And things hadn't gone smoothly with Joe, even after he won a Stanley Cup. He'd had a string of brain injuries, and he just played through them, uh, made the decision to play through them. And was allowed to play through them by his teams, and I was able to track Joe down two years ago. Again, he'd largely disappeared from the public eye, and he was in a, a northern Canadian city called Kenora, Ontario, right near the border of Ontario and Manitoba, uh, living homeless, uh, using recreational street drugs a lot, and. I I went there with Trevor Kidd, the former NHL goalie. We had both heard that Joe was in that circumstance. And the deal that we had was that we drive together from Winnipeg to Kenora a a TSN crew with me and Trevor would approach Joe first if we were able to find him. And he would talk to him and offer him some help and asked if he, if Joe would agree to talk to us. And the deal was if he said, no, we would just turn the truck around and leave him alone and allow him to keep his privacy and we'd never report on him. But Joe said, yes, he wanted to share his story. He thought his life story could be a real cautionary tale to other players coming up through the system, that it might also hold the NHL to account for, you know, some of the shortcomings that Joe and other players say uh, exist and how they treat current and former NHL players. And he said it also made him feel relevant for the first time in many years. And uh, so we did a documentary for TSN. And I was contacted by the publisher HarperCollins two years ago, just after the doc aired. And I decided that Joe's story kind of dovetailing into the broader question of this duty that the NHL has to players and trying to answer the question of whether the league has lived up to that duty through the last century I thought it was an important story to document and here we are.
1: Now, you recently produced an incredibly impressive short documentary called The Problem of Pain, which we will absolutely link in the show notes. What you reveal through interviews with former players is how pervasive pain is in the experience of professional hockey players and how complicit so many in the league from coaches to doctors are in concealing that harm through the use of medication that ultimately only compounds the damage done. First, can you explain what the problem of pain is in the NHL, according to this argument? In your estimation, how and why are pain central to the experience of professional hockey? And how does the management of that pain further contribute to harm the player's experience?
3: Well, the NHL would argue this is not just a hockey problem. And they're right. We understand that many contact sports, like football, as well has an issue with with players trying to find ways to stay in the lineup because they're worried about losing their jobs. And so the documentary that you mentioned, The Problem of Pain, what we wanted to do was just kind of lay out what it takes for NHL hockey players to survive a season in this league and how an anti-inflammatory drug called Toradol has become so popular. Uh, we, We understand that health regulators in Canada and in the United States say that this is a drug that should not be used more than five days in a row because it can cause serious complications to your organs to your kidneys to your liver etc and we found that there were players taking this four months at a time and it's interesting you know these guys are all adults Uh, i haven't really dug too far into the issue of minors because there are players in junior hockey who also get these injections but they're adults and they're going to ultimately decide whether to, to be injected with these painkillers so they can keep playing. And they're gonna be accountable for that. Ryan Kessler is a you know, long time NHL player, a U.S. Olympian, has made million, tens of millions of dollars, uh, had fame and fortune, and he's now 36 years old. And because of the tordal abuse, he's suffering from Crohn's disease and colitis. And what that means is many days he can't get out of bed. He has to crawl to the bathroom. He's going to the bathroom 20 and 30 times a day and passing blood when he goes because his gastro uh, tract is so screwed up. Uh, There's a chance that as he gets older, he's going to have to have part of his intestine removed because of this. So he is a, a living example, a testament to what can happen when you abuse a drug like this. And he's accountable. Where does the accountability for a team come in? These hockey players, all they've ever done since the time they were teenagers is hockey. You know, I can't, I don't know of any hockey players who've gone to medical school. Hockey team trainers and doctors have a responsibility to advise players about the potential for long-term damage when they take drugs like Toradol. And in the documentary, what we laid out with on-the-record interviews with Kessler and others is that that's not happening. No players are being told about this. And who ultimately pays the price for that? Well, the players do later. Their wives do. Their families do. And even as much as they make the decision about whether to put the drug in, in their body or not, like I said, we wanted to spur this discussion to look at what responsibilities morally and legally and ethically the teams have to make sure guys know what they're putting in their bodies and what it can do to them
0: yeah i i I couldn't appreciate that more um because i personally i feel like this is something that we consistently miss in sort of the mainstream discourse around not just hockey but uh elite sport generally right this question of pain and injury and you, you actually say something that was I, I kind of did a double take when I, or a split take when I was listening. Um, you explicitly said, speaking of the NHL, quote, pain and injury is a feature, not a bug, end quote. Now, this was amazing to me, uh, in part because I literally wrote a book essentially making this argument. A- and yet I would also suggest that, that that view, which you articulated and which I have also tried to articulate, is pretty heretical. Um, it's not what you hear most people talking about. We mostly hear um, the idea that, like you know, like the pain, injury, and that kind of harm, they're a very unhappy byproduct. Perhaps that they're an accident, that that they're something that you know what I mean. It's not, it's not, it's not essential to what to the spectacle itself, but rather something unfortunate that we could easily do away with. Um, So when I make that argument, what I'm trying to suggest is that pain and injury actually fuel. The political economy of pro hockey because they solicit emotional investment from fans by elevating the stakes of the, spe- the spectacle such that it justifies the meaning and the money that fans invest in it, right? It turns it into something more than just a casual game, right? It becomes this like life or death thing that people can build identities out of, in fact. Um, and you see that like that, that is the I mean, hockey is one of the most, I think, convincing sports for this argument because the way that hockey players play really is a life or death kind of proposition in terms of how they approach it how committed they are to kind of sacrificing themselves especially like the narratives around the playoffs and so forth um and fans buy into that as well of course the fans love to see players sacrificing in that way so but i'm actually really curious to hear you so i've gone on and kind of about how i see it but i'm curious you said Pain and injury is a feature, not a bug. I'd love to hear you elaborate on how you understand pain and injury in that way in the NHL experience. Well,
3: the, the, put, put simply, the NHL makes money off of this. This is a league that has always marketed violence. You know, the New York Rangers owner years ago would park ambulances outside of the arena to draw fans in. You know, the, the, it's amazing. The NHL has had multiple opportunities to study the 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 health physical mental health everything of their retirees and every time they've had this opportunity something's happened and they've just either passed it on or they it just doesn't happen but th- that's remarkable to me because it's a league that loves research one of the things that i uncovered in recent years were a group uh, a series of internal nhl emails the 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 nhl was you know, the defendant in a proposed class action lawsuit, which ultimately failed over concussions. And I went to court to ask the judge to, to unseal a string, uh, a, a huge cache of, of internal emails. And, and among that cache, one of the things that was unsealed was an email string from 2009. And it showed a, pre- a PowerPoint presentation uh, from the meeting of NHL general managers and they talked about in th- this presentation outlined how there was there was music in at least 5% of the fights in the NHL games so they looked at at you know some of the different techniques that the teams had for getting fans more into the game during fighting boxing bells being run rung before the punches were thrown drums or cymbals every time a home player landed a punch which songs did the best job of whipping people up? Bloody Sunday from U2, We Salute You from ACDC, I the Tiger, Fight for Your Right from the Beastie Boys. They, you know, and this was not done casually or just for, for fun. This was market research that the NHL was doing to try to figure out what was the best technique to have their fans more invested in what they were trying to sell them. So to answer your question. Violence has always been a part of hockey, and it's always been something that the league understands it needs to set itself apart and make more money.
2: In your work with, with players like Joe Murphy and um, in interviewing people like Ryan Kessler, how important um, or, or how aware uh, are players of the league's approach to fighting and and how do players kind of navigate that because we often hear that like players want to participate in the violence that it's a part of the game that that nobody wants it gone are players to you voicing concern over the the well, role of fighting
3: well i think fighting is on its way out of hockey in you know one area that the nhl's got it correct on i just mean they've, they've been right not that they've made the right decision but just that that this would gradually peter out, that, that faster players would come into the league and fighting would disappear. And that is happening. It's, the fighting is down dramatically from past decades. Uh, you know, they, they, there was, when it was a more prevalent part of the game, the guys who were tough guys and fighters were represented by the Players Association, like all the other players. They didn't want to lose their jobs. So the PA, the Players Association, kind of fought tooth and nail against any sort of prohibition on fighting. That's not the point. The, the the story that we did, the problem of pain, yes, there are fighters who have problems. Ryan Kessler was not a fighter. Kyle Quincy, a former Detroit Red Wings uh, player who we we talked to tor- about toward all use, was not a fighter. So the whole idea, the whole construct that fighting is the problem in hockey, it's not true. You know, this is just a violent game on it's just just the way it's played regularly. It's fast. You know, the the collisions in hockey are just every bit as hard as they are in football because guys are going twice as fast because they're skating into each other. Right. So, you know, I don't know about mass and force and acceleration, but just watch a hockey game and you'll see what the effects are.
0: No, that's, that's a great, that's a great point. And I think that that's what people so often miss. Like when we talk about, and it's not just about hockey, like when we talk about this question of violence, like sport as violence, um, you know, people want to think about fighting as violence, because we have that kind of, of course, conventional understanding of what violence means. But like, I would see violence as a much more structural feature of sport in terms of like, the way in which players have to play all of these so-called games, right, is that they have to play them in such an extreme way that like even a basketball game, when athletes are forced to, like, to, to put such an intense strain on their bodies, their knees, and everything else in the course of that work, like, there is actually a type of violence, even to the sports that don't even seem to have physical contact. Act. But I, other- thought it was really, I
3: thought it was really interesting in the playoffs this year. The NHL had a social media campaign called The Price You Pay. And this was a string of videos of NHL players going down to block shots, getting hit in the face with a puck, you know, struggling to get off the ice. It really showed the pain and agony of, of, of playing. And the league was celebrating the fact that these guys go through this pain and get right back out on the ice. That social media campaign was up for hours and the league took it down. I would love, and, and, and again, it came out right at the same time as our documentary aired. I would love to know what the discussions were at the NHL's head office behind the decision to delete that social media campaign. What do you guys think went on there?
2: It appeared as if the NHL was trying to capitalize or like rebrand the the, the the Don Cherry Rock'em Sock'em in social media at times. And then pulling that almost immediately, I think it was an actually direct response to social media backlash over your documentary. Like I thought those two things were happening like together and reinforcing one another. And they realized that like, they they can't be playing that game. Not right now, not in the midst of a pandemic, not on the heels of everything we know about CTE and head trauma and um and, and drug abuse in um uh, in, in hockey and in sports in general.
3: But who do you think so who do you think actually makes that call? Like oh. to pull that to pull that off. I yeah. think it's you know Heidi Browning is the chief marketing officer yeah. at the NHL. Yeah. Is it her yeah. call? Is it Gary Bettman? Is it Bill Daly? It, I don't it think it goes mad?
2: as high as I don't think it goes as high as as commissioners or bill daly or anyone high in executive. I think that call would have been made by PR by communications um just realizing kind of like realizing the atmosphere on on social media. Like because it happened so quick. Like I don't I don't really think like Gary Bettman is on Twitter, right?
0: Oh, but this is an interesting this is actually a really interesting question because there's a couple of things happening here. I, I agree with you, Derek, that like if this was just a bad, a quote unquote, what we could call a bad tweet that got like ratioed, right? In other words, that just a lot of people replied and said that this was a terrible idea. I'm sure that the NHL even has a policy on social media. that's like if things are going south with anything you post, delete, delete, right? Because there's no upside to that. But if you're producing an ad like this, right? They've made a real investment. That's different. They probably meant to put. it. I don't know if they did, uh, Rick. You may know this, but I don't know if they aired it on television or not. But it seems like they meant to air at least some version of that ad on television. Um, would you agree with that? I don't know. You I don't mean, know. Okay, uh,
3: okay. So I, d- yeah, I, 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 I speak, working for a TV network myself, I know the I know the importance of social media campaigns, and so it may be that the NHL thought it was going to get so many eyeballs just having this on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter and TikTok or whatever else.
0: Maybe it was never going to go on TV. Who knows? Okay. Okay. Well, the other thing I was thinking, and you alluded to this, Derek, I think it's really critical. I, and Maybe this is just me being an optimist, but I think that the pandemic may have done something specifically for this conversation that you have been part of, Rick, this This health and safety and harm question, not just in hockey, of course, and and across sports, because more and more people are kind of taking on an argument that, again, as someone who was making that argument before the pandemic, I can tell you that almost no one was paying attention to it or taking it seriously. Um, But but it's actually part of the more mainstream discussion now, and um, things may have tilted enough that they they just they had a feeling that this was a blunder, that this is not the way to sell their league in this moment. Uh, and, and there's another thing I want to, uh, to address from what you were d- describing before, because um, when it comes to the question of fighters, right, you're saying that fighting was on the way out and that fighting is not the only kind of measure of violence, all of which I agree with. And the, the only thing I wanted to add to that, from my experience interviewing uh, former professional hockey players, one of the things that was really was horrifying to me, in fact, in the interviews I did, especially with enforcers, was the fact that they didn't actually sign up to be an enforcer initially, right? Like they were just really good hockey players when they were 15 years old. And then when they were 15 or 16, the coach said, sorry, but the only way you stick on this junior team is if you switch to this fighting role, right? Because you don't quite cut it as a scorer or a defender or whatever else, right? And so the players were essentially required to make that conversion, to being a pugilist in order to, yeah, go on, go on.
3: Yeah. I'm just going to say that you're absolutely right. I mean, no one does get into it as a fighter. Look at Nick Kiprios. Nick, uh, you know, was a fighter when he played in the NHL, but when he was in major junior hockey, he played with the North Bay Centennials. The guy had 41 goals a season, 62 goals a season, 49 goals in another season. He was the best player on the ice, but you get to the NHL and there's that separation between you. The guys are just that much better and you do what you can to survive because what else are you going to do? All you've ever done is hockey, right? We talked about that a couple of minutes ago. So the idea that you'd be transitioning out of the game in your early 20s, most players just can't even fathom of that. They'll do anything to put that off.
0: Exactly. And, and just exactly. Exactly. Uh, And so what was so horrifying to hear these players was not only that, like this, what this does in part, and this is something we talk about a lot, is it problematizes the notion of consent, of course, right? Because, I mean, obviously they are technically consenting to continue in that role and that they have got a choice, but you've just outlined what that choice really means, right? Which is that their whole purpose, effort, every part of their identity has been devoted to hockey and becoming an elite uh, a professional hockey player. So how can you just give that up when you have the option to continue? course right yeah. so that's not really consensual and the other piece though that goes with it then especially one of the players i talked to actually not just one multiple players who are enforcers described the emotional consequences even in real not just as not just from when they were retired which your documentary exposes so brilliantly right like how they reflect upon their career but even in the moment like one of the players i talked to talked about being at his cottage in the summer And all he could think about was just looking ahead a month or two down the road to fighting at like Madison Square Garden in front of 20,000 fans three times against people that were often bigger than him. And honestly, he just he was scared shitless. He the idea of it made him feel sick. Right. And that was his job. And that's what's fueling so much of the kind of as you put it as the business of hockey like this is actually what those people who we fetishize as these kind of like macho people who are you know what i mean like they're just so like they they must want to lo- fight they love to fight like that's not really the reality
3: but i think you're i think the discussion about fighting is 10 years ago honestly i think if you want to do a service to players the discussion now is more about the oversight of safety it's about the issue of there's no transparency on, uh, you know, the concussion spotter program in the NHL. Uh, you know, the, the information that the league does not disclose about player injuries. Uh, you know, those, these are the issues I think that need to be talked about. The, the debate over fighting, it feels to me anyways, like been there, we've been there, done that. There, if you look at an NHL roster now, you don't see guys who are in the NHL now just because they can fight. It was the case. It's no longer the case that doesn't mean that the game's safe. It's still fast. It's still violent. Guys still get hurt. And these kinds of questions still have to be addressed. But I just think that the fighting one maybe has run its course
0: so, let's return then to the documentary, um because another thing that really popped for me in watching your interviews, uh which were really superb interviews, uh, and you know, all of us here do interviews in our own academic work, so you know when, when we say that, like it's it's actually it's a real art form to be able to to have those kind of conversations and have people disclose, especially when they're on the record as they were, um, to disclose that kind of, I think, very personal trauma that they experienced. So, so to me, you did like an invaluable service really to um, everyone that cares about harm in the NHL in those interviews. Uh, and so one thing that popped for me in watching them was Ryan Kessler, especially when he starts to speak about the harm caused by Tordal approximately a year into his retirement, if I have that correctly, right? Like he, Ryan Kessler only very recently retired, yet during his career, he was really outspoken about the importance of playing through pain and injury. Um, Now, I have long felt that there's a real challenge in trying to speak with current active players, athletes across sports, about issues of injury and harm because their occupation, right, the actual job, it really doesn't tolerate any uncertainty or ambivalence on these issues, or it would almost certainly, I think inhibit their performance, right? Like if there's any doubt in your mind about whether you can commit to the kind of sacrifice that's required, how can you succeed when the people you're playing against who are also these elite athletes, right? Much less you are, if they're fully committed, right? You just, you just can't do it. It's not safe really. And it's not possible.
3: Um, uh, Hockey is a monoculture and it is, you know, more, um, more than any other pro sport. I think one That does not celebrate individualism. You know, it's not the NBA where it celebrates its individual stars or the NFL or baseball even. It's all about the team. And again, from the time these guys are young teenagers, that is drilled into them. And, you know, what that means is you don't find players who are willing when they're active to talk about issues like this. To to share their own personal stories because they're afraid that they'll be ostracized they won't be part of the team anymore. They'll be cut. The teams will find someone else uh who is more willing to kind of do what you're supposed to do in hockey. Again, remember, the, the this league and the teams in the league more again, more than any other sport, I think, are run by former players. And and that's that's a really interesting distinction because what it means is you know, some of the other emails that I found uh from the NHL, you have Executives, high-level executives like Colin Campbell in the NHL, talking about how the league doesn't is sick and tired of being overdoctored. Imagine, imagine that the, the you know head of the Canadian Medical Association, um, neurologists with decades of experience, that want to offer insight into how you can better keep your players safe, and the response from these executives who are former players is get lost. You know, we're, we're tired of being overdoctored. You have former players who are general managers in hockey saying, you know, we shouldn't be bringing the stretchers out on the ice to take off players. It looks too dramatic. Think about that. You've got, you know, a former player who's a general manager saying, uh, I wonder if these guys, when they're clutching their heads, you know, after a hit in the corner, if they're just trying to draw a penalty and maybe get two weeks off during the season, I it, it's almost hard to believe because how could a former player, one of the guys who was part of this pack say things like that? It's, it, it's just hard to fathom.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it is. You're right. And that, that kind of brings me to this question I have, which is given that we for the, all the reasons you just described, and I agree with you completely, um, you just don't see current players saying, you know, expressing those kind of concerns because it just there's just no incentive to do it. Um, it's It's a way of submarining their career immediately, after everything they've after everything they've sacrificed to get to the point that they're at. Um, But then what what you obviously show in the interviews you conducted and what I found in my interviews as well with former players is that former players do often revise their outlook, right? When they have a little bit of space, a little bit of distance, and they actually feel and experience the consequences of everything, and they don't have... The sort of emotional fulfillment perhaps of being part of a team and the gratify- gratification of playing in front of fans and all the stuff that c- comes with the career, right? It starts to look really different than it did when they were sort of committed all the way. I'm curious, just just to finish that, do, do you feel like, have you had a lot of off the record conversations, let's say with former players who articulate similar concerns to so the, the three we saw in your documentary, or did you feel that they were fairly exceptional figures in terms of who you've talked to?
3: No, I mean I've. You can look back through my work. I've talked to a number of players on the record about this. Uh, what's to me? What's the good of on off the record chats about this? I need people to stand by what they say. I need people on the record about this. That's the way this is going to change, because when you have people on the record, the credibility that your reporting um, has is increased, you know, many fold. So whether it's guys like Jeff Friesen, you know, talking about how. You know, he had so many issues with brain injuries and overall injuries, he turned to CBD and was told by his NHL team, no, you need to get back on the synthetic drugs or you're done. And he had to walk away from the game. You know, I've interviewed Matt Johnson's uh, parents. For those who don't know, Matt Johnson was an enforcer, big guy from Southern Ontario. And again, so many injuries, self-medication. And when he was retired and came back to his family home, he was a different person. And his dad, Lee, shared with me that one night he woke up and Matt, this hulking six foot four, you know, 260 guy, was standing at the end of the bed staring at him while he slept. His parents had to put a lock on their bedroom door because they didn't feel safe in the same house as their son. I talked to Briardy and Dan Lacatour. Dan's a gritty New Englander who played for the Rangers and the Boston Bruins. And his wife, Bridie, in their family home, broke down and was sobbing with me, saying that Dan was not the guy she married. She remembered, and anybody can Google this, she can remember a night when Dan was playing for the New York Rangers and fought Robin Regeer and fell and hit his head on the ice and was unconscious. And when he finally came to, after the game, they stitched him up. The team trainer for the Rangers stitched him up. And what would you think would happen next? Would he go to the hospital for an MRI or a CAT scan? Would a neurologist come and see him? Would the team doctor spend time with him? Would a neuropsychologist spend time with him? No. The team trainer turned to Bridie and said, wake him up every couple hours to make sure he's okay, and sent her home. How is any partner equipped to handle something like that? The NHL has the money. In good times, this is a $5 billion industry. It's a league whose commissioner, Gary Bettman, describes the NHL as a family. Does sending a player home with his wife and putting her in charge of his care like that sound like something that a family does?
1: Yeah. And so I I'm, I have a, a brief follow-up that kind of points to my own sort of ignorance about the NHL is that... You know, you said earlier how it's very unique and that it's a play, it's a league that's run by a lot of players, or at least a lot of players are really involved in sort of the administration, the running of the league. And so I guess my question is, like, why do you think former players are so dedicated to maintaining the culture of the league, right? Like, in other words, like, what do they have to lose? by good, not good kind question. of calling these things yeah. I'm just kind of curious, because like I said, I'm just kind of ignorant about this. So I'd really, yeah, anything, any thoughts you have on that would be great. Yeah,
3: you know, one, one interesting thing is uh, the, the NHL official who is in charge of player safety, in charge of suspending players for bad behavior on the ice, is a former enforcer named George Peros. Um, there's a real interesting distinction between the NFL and the NHL. And it seems to me in the NHL, when you're done playing, you've got a couple different categories of players. You have the players who either work for the league and teams in one group. And in the other group, you have the players who want to work for the NHL and the teams. And that's why guys don't talk about their stories, because even in retirement, they're afraid of being blacklisted. They're afraid that not only will they not get jobs that they want in hockey, but maybe they won't be invited to alumni events anymore. What about those golf outings in the summer? Again, being part, being one of the boys. What about being invited back to games and being in the box and having your, you know, your image up on the, 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 the screen and people standing up and applauding you for playing in your NHL market for a couple seasons? Are you really willing for all of that to potentially go away so you can share your story of pain? It's a tough thing to ask players to do this. I, I think that the change is, is going to come. If it does come, it's going to come because of moms and wives. Because these guys, I've heard time and again, change. When they self-medicate, when they pay through, play through the pain, it's their wives and their families that are the ones that are picking up the pieces. Because when they leave the NHL, the league is not saying, hey, we've got your back for the rest of your days they're on their own.
1: And so I guess, no, thank you so much for like really laying that out. And I guess I'm just kind of trying to connect, like trying to connect some dots here and that, you know, you're talking about how the league sort of portrays itself as as a family. And it's like, we know when we look at stories of like abuse and other sports, and even just like a, a research on abuse in general, that like, that is such a loaded term that abusers, some abusers use in order to sort of trap people and sort of gaslight them into thinking that that relationship is healthy. And, and, you know, again, I'm not an expert in the NHL, but it just seems like it's this culture that's like laced with this really like negative sense of sort of masculinity. If it's like, it's this family, therefore we support each other. Therefore we don't like rat anything out. It just seems very like, you know, I understand why players sort of get taught that this is how it is because I was an athlete. I was a swimmer and like, I never would have doubted anything that my coaches were saying. So like I grew up in a similar but different sport environment, but you know, just looking looking at it from sort of an outsider. It, it seems as if there's a lot of rhetoric that's being passed around that sort of used to make people complicit in what's going on.
3: I don't disagree with you. And, and again, it's not that they, it's not that the NHL may or may not put this idea out there that they're they're a family. I I sat in 2019 in Parliament in Canada, in Ottawa, and Gary Bettman testified before Parliament, and that's what he said. We look at ourselves as a family. So there's no gray area. This is what the NHL's commissioner has said in testimony
1: before our Parliament. Yeah. And you know, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of harping on this, but sort of your point about I guess what concerns me about how it's going to be up to like the women is that just like we know that like women's concerns are just so not like trusted um that when it becomes the, that when it becomes a responsibility of like the wives and the mothers right that people just sort of say oh they're just being silly and feminine and weak or whatever um and you know I think too of like gymnastics because that's just been such a huge exploding story over the summer which also was sparked I mean, by this huge abuse case, but also with Athlete A, similar to your documentary, just really sparking open this conversation and people sort of being willing to talk about it, and it's really blowing up into like this sort of global conversation. Um, So yeah. Maybe though
3: though in your example, you know, Athlete A, it takes one case for things to Mm -hmm. blow up. And you have a case in the NHL. You know, uh, Todd Ewan is a, a former NHL enforcer who died by suicide in 2015. He was 49 years old. His wife, Kelly is now suing the NHL saying that the league, you know, either knew or should have known about the, the long-term damage that fighting and brain injuries would, would have on her husband. And that case is in the courts in California right now. Hmm. So maybe Kelly Ewan will be that spark that prompts other wives and mothers to just say, no, this isn't good enough.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's an excellent point. Thanks for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of um, talk about this from sort of a, a similar angle, you know, we we really want to sort of ask you straight sort of what you think about this in terms of to what extent do you think the NHL has dealt with health trauma and CTE appropriately?
3: I don't think they've dealt with it appropriately at all. Oh, that wasn't a leading question, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how have they, they, the, there's, they, they have had opportunities. Uh, They have been on notice for decades. And and I cover this off in my book, I think in, in pretty stark detail about all the different moments in the game's history, when they could have done more, you know, there was a player named Norman Laveau with the Boston Bruins. And in 1982, this guy was an 18 year old speedster. He could fly, and he was in the middle of his first NHL season, 1982. And he gets crunched with a body check and hits his head on the ice, and he winds up in the hospital, and he's, intensive, he's in intensive care, and it's touch, or touch and go whether he's going to live or not. And he, he, go, he drops from 175 pounds down to about 120 pounds, and he, and, he, and he makes it. He gets out of the hospital. What's interesting is what happens then. At first, the Boston Bruins say, his team say, you know, he's in the first year of a three-year contract. Absolutely, we're going to make sure that we pay that out for him. Of course, we're going to pay that out for him. We're a family. Sound familiar? And and then what happens? Oh, well, well there, are, there are some issues. It may be an act of God, maybe a pre-existing condition. The doctor says that there was an issue in his brain where an artery and a vein meet. So... This, maybe this is not a hockey injury. An insurance company later settles the case and this kid's family gets paid out. But here's where it gets interesting. When it all wraps up, there's a big press conference in Montreal where the kid's from. And his agent says in this press conference, which is televised, reported on by US and Canadian media alike, you know, we're still not sure exactly what happened in his brain, but. Let's avoid this happening ever again. The NHL should start doing brain scans of players before every season. They only cost two hundred bucks, and if you do that every year, you can actually track a player's brain health over the course of their career. You could watch and see points of deterioration for two hundred dollars per player per season.
1: Hmm.
3: And what has happened in the forty years since then? Nothing. Wow. In fact. There have been, I did a story last year about a, a doctor, a neurologist in Kingston, Ontario, who's been doing brain scans of players, but he's doing the scans because the players are seeking them out because they're worried on the condition that that information is not shared with their NHL teams. So the, for 40 years after this suggestion was made publicly, nothing happens, and only now are players taking it in their own hands to go and check it out.
2: So, given all the harm that you have highlighted in your work, to what extent do you actually think the NHL and elite hockey more broadly can, in fact, be reformed?
3: Well, um, I don't know. That's a good question. Hmm. I think that accountability has a lot to do with this. I think reporters asking more questions, you know, after the Stanley Cup Finals finished, the Dallas Stars came out with a string of of player injuries. Tyler Sagan played with a torn labrum in his hip. You know, other multiple players were shot up regularly with painkillers. One guy, his foot injury and ankle injury was so bad he could barely get a skate on. In the past, maybe that would be, those players would be celebrated. Again, like what we talked about. Hey, they fought through. They found a way to play. The price you pay. And my sense is this year more than ever, that media who covered the Dallas Stars weren't having it. They wanted more questions answered about how decisions were made for players to get these pain injections and how many injections they received. And I reached out to the Dallas Stars team doctor and not surprisingly did not receive a response from him. But, you know, I think that could be one path to reform if sports media just starts asking harder questions you know starts demanding more transparency the nhl is allowed to get away with saying things like players are out with upper and lower body injuries very vague the nhl is allowed to get away with not telling anyone who the concussion spotters are in each of their 31 buildings you know you pick up a media guide for this sport you can find the identity for anyone who works for the league in any team massage therapists sports psychologists All their scouts, pro and amateur. But the one group of people whose identity is cloaked in secrecy are the concussion spotters, the people whose job it is to decide whether to pull a guy from a game or not.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: Wow. Okay, well, you said something really interesting to me here because you've said in terms of reform, like one of the avenues is that the media needs to start asking serious questions. And, And that comes around to something that I wanted and I mentioned from the start that I wanted to ask you about. Which is essentially how you, as someone who is working for a corporation intimately connected to the sport you are covering, right? Nonetheless, uh, manage to cover that sport in a genuinely critical manner. Your reporting does not have the conflicted qualities that I would say the vast majority of the material emerging from the sport media complex does and like i I won't have to use i'm not even i don't want to use your employer as the example like that's an awkward thing obviously for you but if you just look at espn for instance uh, which i know has a relationship with tsm but still if i'm looking in the united states at espn you very very seldom there is outside the lines there is some reporting happening but the vast majority of what goes on at espn is in the service of the leagues they are in partnership, which is obvious, right? Because ESPN's profits are predicated on the fact that the NFL, in fact, exists, that the NFL spectacle goes on, that there is, in fact, violence that is producing a commodity that people can watch and enjoy. And to highlight that violence is to jeopardize the entire project, not just of the NFL, but also ESPN's project hand-in-hand with the NFL? Because if ESPN is tearing down the NFL, what do they have left Right at the end, especially with the kind of contracts they have, the money they have paid to cover this league? So how do you negotiate and balance the interests of having an employer in that kind of situation um, and the pressures that come with those interests with your own conscience and reporting, which I 100% agree. You are doing the work that you're asking other people to do. Um, And if more journalists did exactly the kind of reporting you're doing, I do agree it would have a tremendous impact, but I don't really know how you do it.
3: (laughs) Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. No one has (laughs) ever told no one at TSN in the six years that I've been there has ever said, no, you can't do a story. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the guidance that I've received has been be Right. And be fair, and to me that's a that's a really good direction. Uh, I joined TSN after working for years in newspapers, and I started out as a traditional sports writer, doing exactly the kind of work that you're talking about, going to games and practices, you know kind of like how are you feeling that That felt like I was asking that question every day, and I got really bored of it, and so i I, I left my job and wound up becoming a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star. I covered the war in Afghanistan on the ground. I covered in Pakistan, the battle between the establishment government and the Taliban. I covered a civil war in Sri Lanka. I lived in India and traveled all through that country. And I think that really prepared me for the job I have now in an interesting way. And what it taught me was one, always to be curious, there are all kinds, there's a million stories out there that are waiting to be told. I'm not a sports reporter. I really I'm not. I know you introduced me as that, but I tell stories about people. Yeah. And at the end of the day, how do I do what I do for for TSN? All I'm doing the NHL in a way should be thanking me. If the kind mm-hmm. of stories that I do, and I'm saying that tongue in cheek, obviously, but if the stories that I do Give a voice to people who feel like they've been abandoned, and that ultimately does lead to change. Isn't that good for the sport? Mm -hmm. If you have fewer cases like Joe Murphy's, if you have fewer stories like Ryan Kessler, if if the upshot of our documentary, The Problem of Pain, is that trainers and team doctors starting next season are going to have to educate players more on painkillers, isn't that a good thing for
0: the sport? Yeah. Well, okay, that's a a really interesting question for us to talk about because here's my thing. Is it like if the sport in part is relying on this? sacrificial ethos. Now, you, you made, a, I think, a very fair point earlier. So I'm not trying to go back to that enforcer piece. So let's scrap the enforcer piece because I, I, I frankly love your analysis the fact that we should be thinking about the harm that happens just in the course of like the so-called less violent NHL, right? That there's still all these forms of harm. So that, I think that's, that's a great way of framing it. So if we think about it that way, though, we still have fans who love the sense that players are giving themselves up for the team, right? Let's imagine the playoffs. So for instance, you know, like blocking shots, let's just use that as an example, right? Like, I mean, blocking shots in the NHL is brutal, physically brutal thing to do, right? I mean, there's no getting around that. When you have a puck traveling at that speed and it collides with your body, um, you know, it may hit a pad and it may not, and that's going to cause you harm fundamentally. Is there a way, I guess my question is, is there a way to mitigate those fundamental forms of harm um, like doctors not prescribing tordal Okay. Like that's, that's obviously a good thing from a, the standpoint of like being humane. So I agree with it 100%. But if we don't see players being medicated in a way that allows them to abuse their bodies in the way fans want, they may not be able to abuse their bodies in the same way, which means that mm-hmm. fans aren't ultimately getting the product that they want to see. That's where I see the NHL getting harmed potentially.
3: I, I, there, listen, you don't have to, to highlight and celebrate guys blocking shots. Hockey is an amazing game. The amount of talent in the game right now in the sport, mm-hmm. it's never been as good as it is right now. Faster than ever, the players are so skilled. Their hand-eye is amazing. Their ability to dangle pucks on their sticks, they're, they're, they're fantastic. That Just lean into that. Lean into the skill. Uh, I, I think, honestly, I think that's enough. And and I'm not saying that toradol doesn't have a place. If a guy needs a toradol injection to get through a Stanley Cup final game, it's not my place to say no. You shouldn't be doing that. What the the question that I'm trying to raise is: Do we really need to see players taking pain injections in the preseason and early on in the season? Is that really a habit they should be getting into?
2: Yeah. I so so to to just kind of like wrap up and and kind of go back it's building on on nathan's last question but it's more about and you just referenced that hockey is an amazing game so i'm going to assume rick that you're a fan of hockey is that correct
3: yeah i love it i play it a couple times a week with some guys who used to play pro and my son plays hockey uh mid mid to high level in the toronto area it's a great sport
2: like this is like something we all grapple with on this show, and we like to ask guests this, like a, a sort of variation of this question. but but building on the last question, how do you negotiate your own fandom in hockey and the NHL um, and whatever other sport you sort of participate in? And then when you uncover some of the dark sides of the sport? and when you go in and talk to people and you see the harm that the sport can, in some respects, due to people. How do you sort of navigate those two hats of being a, a, a critical um, a fact-finding reporter and like a fan who wants to play and engage with the sport?
3: I don't think there's any question. The journalism comes first. Mm-hmm. We, I, I hope we'd all agree that independent journalism is as important as it's ever been, not just yeah. in sports, but in our societies right now. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm all about trying to give families a voice, trying to find stories that hold powerful people accountable, speaking truth to power, however you want to put it. That's what my calling is. That's what I'm here to do. And, you know, I have enough people thank me for the work that I do. I mean, it's fulfilling. It's rewarding. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I love it. And and it doesn't in any way change my love for playing hockey or watching the sport.
1: Yeah, well, Rick, thank you so very much for joining us this evening yeah. and just really like a- answering us like so honestly. I know we all yeah. really appreciate kind of how sort of reflective you are and sort of explaining your you know, how you got where you are and kind of your trajectory as as a reporter, but also kind of your work in this field. It's just something we so appreciate. So thank you so much.
3: Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you, guys.
2: Thank you for listening to another episode of the end of sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at end of pod, or check out our website at www.endofsport.com where you can find details for our Patreon to support the show even more.